0: Welcome to Left, Right, and Unwanted, the podcast where people across the political spectrum discuss ideas and politics. I'm Lauren, and I'm the left. I'm Morgan, and I'm the right.
1: I'm Luke, and I'm the unwanted.
0: What constitutes legitimacy, and does legitimacy have an impact on voluntary compliance? James Gibson addresses this in Understandings of Justice institutional legitimacy, procedural justice, and political tolerance. Gibson investigates whether or not courts and other political institutions have a measurable effect on perceived legitimacy and acceptance of decisions by the general public. He hypothesizes that a greater perception of fair decision-making processes will lead to greater compliance, but through survey research finds this not to be the case. Ultimately, he defends the link between institutional legitimacy itself and public Acceptance of decisions. Gibson's research interests include judicial politics, political tolerance, and political psychology. Who do you allow in your life to influence your decision making?
1: People that have power over me and the people whose opinion I care about.
2: That I mean, that sums it up. Any specific government institutions? Like, I mean, they have power over me. Like I won't go break the law because I don't want to go to jail.
1: I mean, he just spends a lot of time talking about legitimacy. When do people view, you know, laws as legitimate? The first thing I do is I look at like, is there some independent moral obligation to engage or not engage in this activity? And then the other question I have is not really how legitimate it is. It's, am I going to get caught? And if I get caught, what's the punishment? You know, like speeding, I might get caught, but I'll pay the ticket if I get caught.
0: I think that's the issue with the research he conducted, is he almost forced the issue of legitimacy by making the scenario so extreme that you had those questions when, for the most part, I mean, I agree with you. I don't think the average person walks around thinking, is this decision based in legitimacy? It's more, how does it impact me and what are my choices based on my beliefs? He really spends the first two sections setting up the backbone to his argument and providing more proof for why he chose to research what he did and why he believes what he does. In section one, which is the introduction, um, he starts by setting up a platform for the legitimacy that he describes. And in this case, he equates legitimacy Like the way you see it is through voluntary compliance with laws, procedures, rules, and specifically voluntary compliance with rules or decisions that you may not agree with. The idea is that if an organization is legitimate and can legitimize a decision, even if it's met with public disapproval, people are more likely to go along with it. And one of the first ones he sets up to do that is the Supreme Court.
1: He has a line in there, legitimate policies, even unpopular ones, are more likely to evoke compliance. And what made me think of this is, in terms of COVID, in terms of, like, for instance, there's an Omaha mask mandate again right now. Only the last one was made by the city council. This one was made by by a health director. And there's currently a legal argument about whether the health director had the authority to issue this current mask mandate. And I think that is going to affect, on some level, compliance. I think there's some people that are always going to wear a mask and some people that are never going to wear a mask. And then there's people in the middle that are like, well, what's the law? Who said the law? Like OSHA's vaccination mandate or the Health and Human Services foreclosure mandate.
0: I mean, what's interesting about the Omaha mandate is the mayor is challenging the legitimacy of the mandate as well. She's on record saying, well, since you put the mandate into effect, I will wear one, but only because it's the law. She disagrees with how it was started. But so she seems to be following it as a legitimate policy, even if she disagrees with how it came into play.
1: And broader speaking, getting back to the Supreme Court, he's building on the work of a political science scientist, Robert Dahl, who wrote this article called Decision-Making in a Democracy, the Supreme Court as a National Policymaker. And Dahl's basic conclusion was just like Congress really isn't independent of the president because in terms of like political parties, they're typically working together. So for instance, it's not like Nancy Pelosi is independent of Joe Biden or Mitch McConnell is independent of Donald Trump. They're technically in different institutions, but they're working together to create law that they want to see happen. Dahl viewed Supreme Court justices as part of a national coalition as well just like Congress and the presidency in terms of political parties. And he says that justices rarely challenge the actions of Congress, except, and he has a couple of caveats, one is when the governing majority that passed legislation some time ago was no longer in power, or in other case is when there's a new coalition that's so new that the court hasn't caught up to it yet. So basically, there's kind of like a lag between the Supreme Court and the president and Congress you're going you're gonna to think that the Supreme Court justices that are nominated by a president and then confirmed by a Senate are going to have policy views similar to that, of that president and that Senate.
0: Well, and in Dahl's work, he recognizes that people kind of see it both ways. Like at the same time, you can view the Supreme Court as a political institution knowing all of those factors but simultaneously people also see it as almost an impartial third party that exists outside of the president and congress so it's kind of it's kind of like both of those things at the same time in the american
1: consciousness so if congress is passing a law the supreme court doesn't need to strike it down to protect majorities because if it was against majorities the congress just wouldn't have passed it. it's a counter-majoritarian force so it's, it's explicitly there to thwart democracy. Um, so I hear sometimes people talk about how the court is standing in the way of democracy. It's like, yeah, that's the point. The point is that sometimes the mass of people will demand things that hurts minorities. That's the point at which the Supreme Court strikes down laws because they violate someone's constitutional rights. Although, is that really, what, what is the job of the Supreme Court? And if you ask most people, they'll talk about like constitutional rights and all that kind of thing. But the United States court system deals with stuff like what he's talking about in this article very rarely. I mean, I was, I worked for a judge for two years and guess how many laws we were asked to strike down as unconstitutional in the two years I was there. None. Yeah, none. There were never any cases about it. It was all like contracts, insurance. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, a lot of criminal stuff. But this just really isn't the main thing that the court does. The court decides like 90 cases a year and like five of them are sort of the big, if that, are like sort of the big news items. And I think people overestimate how much the Supreme Court's engaged in this kind of activity.
2: Yeah, just those other cases yeah, don't make the news because they're not exciting, I guess.
1: And, and the other thing is that the Supreme Court wasn't even, I mean, it always had the power of judicial review because it had the power to decide cases arising under the Constitution, but the Bill of Rights wasn't in the original Constitution. So the Supreme Court wasn't originally there to protect the Bill of Rights, because it wasn't in the Constitution. So it's a job that they've sort of picked up. I mean, there were some constitutional rights, I guess, like um, bills of attainder and ex post facto laws, but there weren't a ton. So it's sort of a, a newer thing that they've adopted this we protect people's constitutional rights
2: idea.
0: He brings up the Supreme Court really to cement in his primary hypothesis, which is the fact that policies that are legitimized in the court's are more likely to be held in compliance by the american people that's really what he goes through and in the rest of the intro he does admit that there is and that could be different now in 2022 but at least when this was written there was next to zero empirical evidence to support what he's discussing he talks about the fact that some of this um, compliance he discusses has been observed anecdotally And it's something I think if you ask people about it, that's the general consensus. But part of why he created this paper is because there was no hard evidence or data proving the link that he thinks is there.
1: Yeah, I looked at sort of the approval ratings of the different branches. So Congress has the worst, which is surprising because it's the most democratic. So you would think if you don't like someone you can vote them out, but yeah, no, they have the worst, even though they're the easiest to change. And starting in 75, they were at 30 and they pretty much stayed around there. They had a brief spike during the dot-com boom when we had a balanced budget for the first time in forever. And it went up to 84%, looks like right after Mm 9-11. And then has basically just cratered since then and has reached as low as nine in 2013 and 15 in 2021. And it's now at 20, that's now at 23. Whereas presidents... I mean, it is much more varied, but even then presidents typically don't end with a very high approval rating. The lows for most presidents got almost all got below 50, whereas the Supreme Court was at 62 in 2001 and has basically stayed in the 50s until it dropped to 43 in 2014 and 42 in 2016 and 40 in 2021. I mean, that's the current rating. It's the lowest it's ever been. Yeah, those are Gallup polls for all of them. Okay. And it's do you approve or disapprove of the way X is handling X's job is the question that they were all asked.
0: I wonder how many people, if there were a follow-up question after the survey, and if they were called and said, hey, you marked approved to this, this, and this, can you explain that? I wonder how many people would be able to cite the specific case for a true reason, or if it's just kind of the thing to do right now is to disapprove of policymakers.
1: Yeah. And the other thing is that most people don't look at the Supreme Court decision and be like, what was the process that led to this? Was this fair? I think most people just look at the outcome.
0: Like, of course you can agree or disagree with the Supreme Court on issues, of course, but since all justices are appointed for life, at some point, I'm not sure how much my agreement or disagreement influences the decision that they're going to make because the cycle has such a slow turnover. I think it's important to have an idea of what you believe about it, but is there something I could do to enact change within the Supreme court? Unlikely.
1: Yeah. Well, I think that there are some justices that are more sensitive to public opinion than others. People that watch the court really think that Roberts cares a lot about the um, legitimacy of the court, about the legacy of the court. So he's more likely to change his rulings on things to try to get more public acceptance than other justices, and maybe um, Kavanaugh.
0: Okay, so basically after the introduction, after acknowledging that there is really slim pickings when it comes to hard evidence to support his point of view, he introduces the study he conducted. And he based it off of a Sokoke dispute When the National Socialist Party of America, which is the U.S. version of the Nazi Party, wanted to hold a demonstration in 1977, the city had a pretty swift response to it and enacted a lot of local ordinances to prevent that from happening. At the end of the day, the ordinances were actually found to be unconstitutional and the city had to overturn them. But then the whole thing was kind of a moot point because the demonstration ended up taking place in Chicago instead of Sokoke. So interesting premise, but really amounted to a whole lot of nothing because there was no real legal action that stuck and then the demonstration moved anyway. But he uses this to create a similar paradigm when he sets up his research study, a survey in which people are asked to do some imagining. And one of the imagining questions is imagine, insert political group you dislike here, is going to hold a demonstration here in your neighborhood to advocate its political views. Would you strongly support, support, oppose, or strongly oppose a decision by the government to allow the demonstration to take place? This was meant to examine kind of a baseline for political intolerance within the survey participants, as in what were they willing to tolerate that differed from their beliefs and what wouldn't bother them. And 45% of respondents at the beginning of the survey marked that they would strongly oppose allowing the demonstration to happen, which indicated a high level of intolerance for opposing beliefs in the survey group. And then he changed it. He added some qualifying questions. Half of the participants, this was modified and they were asked What if the Supreme Court stepped in and did X? And then the other half was asked, what if the local court stepped in? All of them dealt with the idea that a local city council may react to the demonstration. The last important thing I thought was worth pointing out in here is the idea that behavioral intolerance can be very different from attitudinal intolerance. The question he measures was asking people their attitude, which strongly oppose as an attitude acting on something that you strongly oppose would be a behavior. And he does mention that there's no real way to see how that translates because this scenario never really played out. And it's hard to predict whether somebody's attitude will lead to a behavior, which means it's really hard to do his study because A legitimate institution isn't going to stop somebody's attitudes, it's really just going to stop whether or not they will act on what they believe. And table two, with the intolerant behavioral propensities chart, when he introduces an institutional intervention, one of the options he gave people was that you could do nothing at the moment, but then vote against the decision maker at the next election. And he offered it up as a choice for people dealing with the Supreme Court as their scenario. And I wondered about that, because that's really not a possibility.
1: Right, especially if it's a 9-0 decision. Because if it's a split decision, you can theoretically vote against that, the party associated with that judge.
0: Right. I just, I thought he almost introduced an impossible there for half of the respondents, because a lot of people... Like 73% were likely to take that action, but I'm not sure that's really an action that you could take. It took me a second to kind of get my bearings because when I read the study, I almost assumed this would function as a multiple choice. Like if you chose try to get the government to stop the demonstration, it would preclude you from choosing the other options. But based on how he has the percentages and how he has the total respondents, it looks like you responded to each action and stated your likelihood for all of those, which I'm not sure makes sense to me since if the scenario was real, you wouldn't take all four of those options. Like, I, 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 I almost think they should be ranked in order from most likely to do this to least likely to do that.
1: Yeah, no, his, and, and is the fact that you're reading other responses possibly going to skew your answer to this one?
2: Mm-hmm. And if you can choose multiple, essentially, then yeah, it's, it was an interesting way of um, presenting the data. Cause I did wonder if he, if he basically was doing like percentages out of the people that chose that option, but then that wouldn't reflect how they were, they how they all stacked against each other.
0: I checked the appendix for his methodology. And it really looks like it was more of a sliding scale for each. Like if you were taking the survey, you would see all the choices and indicate kind of on the temperature scale where you fall. I mean, if I would only really take one of those actions, I should be marking all of the others as very unlikely. And based on how this was marked, I don't think that's what happened. So I'm not really sure he's getting the data he thinks he is. I guess really what his data shows, he has a ton of different instances where he gives people these what ifs. But on the whole, it proves his initial hypothesis, which is that a government institution acts, people do seem to be more likely to tolerate an unpopular decision, which in this case was letting the group of demonstrators demonstrate in the community. But his secondary hypothesis, which was that institutions that are viewed as favorable decision makers, like who make decisions and fair processes would have a greater impact. That wasn't supported by anything he found.
2: It doesn't matter who makes the decision in the end. When when he says, thus, while there's little difference between the impact of the local court and the local legislator, To the extent that the figures differ, the Supreme Court has a slight edge in generating acceptance of its decisions, but it it doesn't seem like it's actually that much, which I guess is why he says surprisingly slight. I wouldn't even say the differences are statistically significant.
1: I wonder if he's also sort of hamstrung by the fact that this is not really something that the vast majority of the public cares about or is affected by. If X group is going to have a demonstration in the city. Are you going to try to stop them? No, I don't care. Like, it'll be interesting, more interesting if it was something like a mask mandate where it's going to affect your day-to-day life no matter what, you know, mm-hmm. where it's like everyone is going to go into a store, a grocery store in the next week or two. Everyone's going to go to a workplace, everyone, you know, that kind of thing where, and I don't know what what his options would have been back then in terms of Supreme Court decisions, yeah, that, that seems like something something more where you can't avoid it. You have to make a choice.
2: And now there's certainly people people will get on Twitter and on other websites and go on rants on there, but that's all they'll do. And then they'll forget about it in a day and move on with their lives.
0: That's, I wonder how he would define that on his scale from do nothing to take action. Because that really wasn't something he contended with in the 80s, but would he count a public Twitter rant as
2: taking, taking action? <laughs> I think a lot of people that make a public Twitter rant would consider us taking action.
1: I think it only counts as action if you have the clap emojis in your post.
2: And between every word you write. Is that what I've been doing wrong? Not enough claps? why nobody cares. You have to put the claps in there. So in the, in
1: the 70s, I want to say, there, were, there was like a national speed limit that was put in at 55, and it was that way for a long time. And, then, and that went to the Supreme Court if the federal government could basically tell the states what their speed limits had to be, and also what their drinking age. Like that seems like it's something maybe more that would, that would fit this idea.
0: That would eliminate his problem with the possible versus the behavioral action too, because his whole thing is based on the fact that if you hate somebody enough, you will break the law to stop them. And for most people, I think that is just objectively not true. But like you said, if he looked at something like a citywide mandate or a drinking age or something you're going to interact with every day, he might be better able to predict the behaviors people would actually do. And in this, it's so extreme. The only people that would follow through with an action probably would do so regardless of the situation. So he's getting kind of an uneven skew. I think he'd have a better chance approximating it if he had better buy-in. Because breaking breaking a speed limit is different than illegally stopping a demonstration.
2: Like
1: a lot of people would have a moral issue, regardless of what the law was, from violently attacking someone who was just marching or giving a public speech or whatever. Whereas it, it really would have to be something yeah, just so completely removed from even a, a, a morality
2: calculus. You would think ultimately it would come down to people's morals and if it was a big enough issue to risk whatever the punishment would be over fighting it, which is not something that most people face in their day-to-day life, something that big. I did think
0: Table 5, where he goes through perceived procedural fairness, was pretty interesting to see what people thought of both the local and national political bodies when it came to decision-making. Like, for example, um, more citizens viewed a local legislator as taking all views on all sides of an issue into account before making a decision. But more people then viewed the Supreme Court as making decisions in a fair way, which I guess like some of that you would almost think it would go together. Um, like the Supreme Court had the lowest views as people thinking they listened to all sides before deciding, but then they had the highest ratings for decision fairness.
2: Yeah, it does seem like those would go hand in hand if you think that they're not receiving all this all sides, how could they make a fair decision?
1: Well, I mean, all the sides are being presented, but maybe I don't necessarily get to have a choice like. The people, I mean, there will be an argument in favor of allowing the demonstration. There will be an argument against allowing the demonstration. But it's not like anyone that opposes or supports the demonstration can talk. It's only a couple, selected few, the attorneys and the parties that represent. Whereas, like, at a city council meeting, you know, you have to sit there while the 40, 50, 100 people all yell about, you know, their, their thing. It's very, you know, Parks and Rec, where you have to listen to all the idiots before you can make the decision.
0: Which I guess could be why... More respondents feel like they listen to everybody, but maybe they don't feel like the decisions are always made in a fair way. Really just going through the motions of let's let everyone yell into the mic and then we'll say what we were going to say at the beginning of the meeting.
1: Yeah, I mean, everyone's had that experience where you're in some kind, there's some kind of argument going on and Mm -hmm. someone that has the same opinion as the outcome as you is talking, but they're just such an idiot and they're making a horrible argument and you're just like oh shut up shut up like you're not helping you're not helping and I wonder if some of that's going on where it's like at least in the Supreme Court you have very eloquent competent people making the arguments on both sides and so it's at least theoretically closer to the best possible argument is being made for both sides rather than even though it's not anyone can talk it's actually a better at presenting both sides because of it.
0: I do wonder how well, and this couldn't really happen, it would just be too wide of a scope. But it would be interesting to see how people would actually respond if the Supreme Court routinely weighed in on local matters. Like if this perceived fairness and legitimacy and everything he's researching, like if the Supreme Court showed up in Omaha right now and either delegitimized or legitimized the current mask mandate, I wonder if it would have any effect at all.
1: Yeah, I mean, the the Supreme Court, just by its nature, I mean, it's nine people, they can't take on, they only take on big things. They typically only hear court cases once the circuits, the circuit court of appeals have differed. He
0: addresses it somewhere in here. I can't find the page, but that is part of, I think, what people buy into for the legitimacy argument as well. Like if you view it as the last stop, and again, I forget where he says it, but it's really the highest you can take a case in this country outside of the court of public opinion, of course, but I think people tend to view like, well, that's it. Like it went to the Supreme court. It's gone as far as it possibly can. Got to live with it and put it to rest.
1: Yeah. There's a quote, uh, the Supreme court's not last because it's infallible. It's infallible because it's last.
0: He does say on 485 officially, That perceptions of the fairness of the decision making processes within these institutions have virtually no impact on willingness to accept the institutional decision as final and binding. So he does concede before the end of this section that legitimacy may have an effect, but whether or not it was a fair process doesn't seem to sway people. I thought he did this unnecessary breakdown where he takes all of this and he then looks at opinion leaders. Is what he calls them. And what it looked like in how he identified who's who is that he just asked people in the survey, do other people regularly ask for your opinion? And if they said yes, they were marked as an opinion leader. And if they said no, they were not. And I think that's a terrible metric.
2: Yeah, that would be a whole separate study on like, does your opinion of yourself reflect? your differing opinions, whether or not they, they change or you're more tolerant or less tolerant. Yeah. I agree that it's throwing like a subjective, a subjective variable into what he's looking at.
0: he starts the conclusion, he just states that this analysis shows that institutional intervention can play some role in ensuring citizen compliance with unpopular policy decisions. So he doesn't really feel comfortable at the end acknowledging how significant the role is, but he does conclude that some of these institutions, if they either uphold or overturn a decision, it will impact how citizens react and respond. In the third paragraph in the conclusion, he does reference some other research based on actual litigation. So instead of these hypotheticals, he examines a little bit of research that's been done into how people perceive fairness when in an actual dispute. And what he says is procedural fairness actually increases but he blames it on the, I mean, the winners, obviously, if you win, you're probably going to think it was done fairly. And if you lose, he says it's due to cognitive dissonance and people get so uncomfortable with losing litigation, they almost have to believe it was done fairly, or you kind of unravel a little bit. So he, he said there's a greater effect size in actual litigation cases than he found in his
2: hypothetical case. If you were so upset about losing, how you would try to match everything up in your head. I guess that's presuming you legitimately believed you are correct. And it's not. I was wrong or <laughs> I did do that thing I wasn't supposed to. And I just was hoping I could get out of it. I just would
0: almost feel like it'd be the opposite. I just, I feel like when well, I could be totally wrong, but people would be so much more likely To go through that. And if you come out the losing side, I think it's easier to be like, oh, it was unfair. It was this, instead of taking personal responsibility for.
2: To me, it sounds like he's saying the difficulty in that would be then you would have to go on knowing that unfairness worked against you. And it's easier mentally to just be like, well, this was fair and not like be upset that. It went against you is my guess, which seems weird to me. And that doesn't seem like what I would think people would do because people seem to like to hold on to anger. It's not my reaction. Not to call out anybody, but you ask any football fan about the refs. Everybody always says the refs are against them. my
0: goodness. Like it's easier than being like, oh, fair is fair. My team lost. It's like, no, the refs lost us. I just, I just see that translating more into a legal setting as well.
1: So yeah, he has this line in here where he says, it's also unclear whether we should generalize these findings beyond the late 1980s. It is possible that the period of sustained judicial activism that the United States has witnessed since the 1960s has eroded any pre-existing abilities of courts to legitimize public policy. And there's this term that gets thrown around all the time, judicial activism, um, judicial activism as if it means something, as if a court can be not active. I just, I think it's a dumb term. If there is a law that comes before the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court can either say it's constitutional or not constitutional. Either way, they're taking action. Not striking down an unconstitutional law is just as bad as striking down a constitutional law. There's not a way for a decision to come from the court and the court not to be active. Like they have to make a decision. So the idea that the Supreme Court can just stand by, either they're abdicating their duty to strike down unconstitutional laws or they're making policy however they want. Either way, they're doing something active. And so I just, I dislike that framing of the issue.
0: I'm not overly familiar with the term. I wondered if he meant it as in, I don't know if the court can choose to hear more or fewer cases in a cycle. So I wonder if at this time, maybe they were ultra active as in listening and weighing in on a lot of issues. But I definitely see your point, regardless of the decision they make, a decision is an action.
1: Yeah, they can can hear as many cases as they want, Um, but that term judicial activism really came about. It's it's really for a long time been a right, it's been a term used more on the right because the court has been seen as more on the left, starting with the Warren court in the sixties where they did a lot of um, sort of civil rights decisions, things like Miranda, I guess, starting with Brown, but then moving on into a lot of rights of the defendant cases. That was really when conservatives started getting upset about um, the Supreme Court being judicially active and create and protecting the bad guy criminals by making all these, making it harder for cops to do their jobs was kind of the the watchword at the time. And then later on into the 2000s, it became revived as you looked at decisions of the court on white gay rights and stuff like that. It's been more on the right that was complaining about judicial activism, although I think that's starting to. shift because uh, as, the, as the court's composition has changed in the last couple of years, um, judicial activism is more of a complaint on the left that they're, you know, standing in the way of democracy, that kind of thing.
0: So really, it's a complaint when the court doesn't rule the way you would like the court to rule.
1: Yes, exactly.
0: I do think it's important that toward the end, he does acknowledge that a lot of compliance can just come out of people fearing sanctions. Whether they be sanctions from peers or from institutions or from workplaces, that he hasn't really addressed at all because this whole argument he's created relies on the fact that people only make action decisions based on legitimacy. So I did think it was nice that at the end he brings in the fact that being afraid of repercussions is also a valid reason that people use to choose their behavior, which I think is more likely for many decisions that people make. Like even take even taking the current mask mandate, there's a lot of people that when there wasn't a mandate, they chose not to wear one. And then now that there is a mandate, it's not so much that they believe it's like a medically sound choice or that it's the right call. They just don't want to be ostracized in the checkout line.
1: All right. Anyone have a closing remark on, on the article?
0: I thought he presented... An interesting view on legitimacy and how it affects people's decision making. I'm not sure there's a way to really do it better because he's trying to quantify something in hypotheticals. But if I had any notes, I would change a lot of the research methodology. But I thought some of his conclusions were okay. I'm just not sure I agree with how all of them are supported.
1: Yeah, I think the topic has a new relevance with the amount of laws in place now that are not going through, especially laws that directly touch individual behavior that are not going through traditional, I'm just a bill, you know, legislature passes it, um, executive signs it, and is being done by just people with titles that say, Mm -hmm. oh, I by decree and fiat and and things like that. So it'd be interesting to see how that affects uh, whether or not people follow the law or not. Yeah. I think it's got to affect it somewhat, but I think there'll be at least one person out there who would change. But whether it's a significant amount is, I think, more dubious.
0: It should change how we teach the lawmaking process, though, because I think a lot of those, like executive orders and certain mandates, have been de emphasized in the past in favor of the traditional here's how a law is made, but if things are shifting and how we make them, there should be better public understanding of what's possible because some of it I think is just a lack of awareness for how, I mean, it's kind of like, can that person do that? I wasn't aware.
1: Yeah. and, And that's the way that most of our laws have been made for at least 50 years now is administratively rather than legislatively. But most of them have been like business regulation and stuff like that. And it's, With COVID, it's really the first time that, like, laws regulate just people's conduct. Can I, like, is there a curfew? What do I have to wear when I go out there? What restaurant, like, it's for the first time people have to, like, wake up and turn on the TV and be like, what did the governor say I was allowed to do today?
2: And that affects a lot more people on a regular basis than, you know, regulations for corporations and stuff.
1: The Clean Air Act, what's the latest and you know epa rule on particulates in the air like that kind of thing it's been going on for a long time but it's not something most people think about
2: yeah you don't have to figure out if you can do something because of that when it starts to affect daily life is when people are gonna care more because you're because you have to
0: well even just understanding are those laws subject to change differently So if it's made this way, is it immune to certain things? What say do I have? If I disagree, what are my options? Because I imagine some of it is very different than what people imagine their choices
2: are currently. Trying to quantify any, any type of opinion based topic is going to be difficult.
0: Survey research is just messy Mm -hmm. because it's all self-report and you really don't have
2: much control over your sample. And it's all, it's going, a lot of it's going to be hypothetical and you're sitting in a room being like, how would you respond to this? Is you, you might think you know how, but maybe you don't.
1: Thank you for listening to this episode of Left, Right, and Unwanted. Please tune in next time.